Welcome to the ATLE podcast, where we share info about ATLE activities, host roundtable conversations on relevant topics, and offer interviews with key stakeholders and guests from around the world. On this episode, we talk about network security, and our guest is Barry Sheeler. I'm your host, Nicole Acusta, and so glad you can join us. You can check out our other podcasts as they become available on the website atle.ca and on Twitter at ATLE Alberta. Welcome, Barry. How are you doing Good today? Good, how are you? Good. Tell our listeners a little bit about uh, what you do presently, where you work. And then we'll get into what we're going to be talking about today. Sure. I'm Barry Sheeler. I'm with Blackhold School Division. I've been here 25 years. I am currently the IT manager and I hold the record for the most titles ever held by somebody in Blackhold. So, <laughs> uh, my position name has changed many, many times over the years. Oh, all right. Well, we're uh, excited to have you here. And so today we thought we'd delve into cybersecurity. As you know, that's a topic as of the last number of years, uh, specifically in Alberta, but throughout Canada, North America. In the work that you're doing for IT, and as schools are using more and more different pieces of technology, as well as your business finance departments, your database of information, student information systems, we're seeing that risk or potential risk to the data that we are holding for the work we're doing uh, in our schools. So can you talk to us a little bit about what cybersecurity means to you and then how are you as a school division really working to identify if there's any vulnerabilities? How are you supporting staff to understand what this all means? And if there's any like gems that you want to make sure anyone, you know, who's walking the walk or trying to figure out where they are in their own cybersecurity at their school divisions, what should they be thinking about? My role in security is I see it as being the gatekeeper. We are responsible. I mean, ultimately, IT is responsible for exposure, keeping the bad guys out of it. We actually did an audit a few years ago to uh, address that. Um, and was that your own audit or did you work with a third party to help with that auditing procedure? Uh, I felt at the time for it to be a valid audit, we needed a third party, um, someone without vested interest in the results. So we actually contracted a third party that specializes in uh, pen tests and uh, security audits. At the time, the auditors were really pushing for validation of what we were doing with this data. Uh, they were really pushing cyber insurance, but we didn't know what we didn't know. So uh, I. Uh, proposed this exercise with our senior leadership. I made sure they, uh, they were on board. I also made sure that uh, there would be no uh, retributions for whatever they f we found, that uh, 
whatever they did find, we deal with as soon as possible. And how long was that process, Barry, from first finding the third-party application? And if you're comfortable, you can certainly share that, or you can certainly share some of the things that you were looking at. What was the process from the time that you decided that you need to at least do an initial audit? Who was involved in that audit? And then how long did it take to actually get that all done before you had some tangible information? Uh, Well, to start with, the the first task was to find um, a third party that did that sort of testing. We worked with uh, ACSI in Alberta. A lot of divisions work with them, and they had a partnership with TripleCheck, who Alberta Edge uses as well to do their security audits. From there, we met and discussed the criteria. There's various levels that there's uneducated, there's motivated ex-employee, and then there'd be state-sponsored. So if uh, China or Iran or Romania wanted access to our network, um, sort of the, the nuclear level, so we decided on motivated ex-employee, somebody that had a, a bone to pick with the division. Um, so that involved any readily available tools available on the internet. Uh, so things that an average Joe could find to, to attack a network. Uh, we set a criteria of one week. Um, so they had, uh, they did a few days of discovery, so they discovered email accounts, they discovered IP addresses. And then from that point, they had one week to do whatever they could. I I didn't put any uh, restrictions on them. I wanted to know any vulnerabilities we had. Uh, After that, we got a report. Some things we knew, uh, user accounts were were going to be an issue, but uh, we didn't realize how bad an issue. They found 120 accounts easily just by scraping our website. They uh, scraped the website finding staff email addresses and then assumed that the first part of the email address would be an account information. And then they uh, accessed a service we had exposed to the internet uh, for staff to log in from home and just started rolling accounts with various passwords. And they got in with a, a privileged account. From there, they once they got through the firewall to internal access, they eventually could have got anywhere they wanted. To. From there, uh, so that's just the email piece. And then I know you're going to talk a little bit about some other exposure. Did that sort of give you an opportunity to really discuss the initial protocols you had in place just for just for emails and where those should be situated and open? Well, we, we discussed it with uh, the... Um, communications person, um, how those email addresses were advertised, so to speak. Uh, and it felt like their opinion was that we couldn't hide that because parents use those links to contact teachers. Uh, what we needed to do was take a step further and assume that, uh, okay, those are available, they're readily available. How can we avoid them being exploited? So the next, once we got the report, the first part, there's four issues. The first part was user accounts. Uh, we implemented two-factor authentication for any external access. Uh, so now if a staff member wants to work from home, they have to use two-factor authentication. Uh, 
Okay, so that's so, the second thing. So you've got email and user accounts. Uh, that's still the first thing. That's, that's, that's still, still part being, of your first yeah. thing? Yeah. Uh, so that was implemented. Um, there was a bit of pushback because two-factor authentication is uh, inconvenient sometimes, but uh, if you want the privilege of being able to work from home, that's the price that comes with it. And that would be all staff, Barry. That's not just yeah. certified staff. That's all of your staff. If they do want to work at home, you've set up the two-step authentication. Yes, yes. Uh, with the move to Google, it's becoming less and less prevalent. It's more a, a central office issue or an admin issue, so principals, vice principals. But uh, we have definitely, if they reach out to us and ask for the ability to work at home, this is the condition and uh, it's non-negotiable. So that stopped them from being able to roll accounts with various passwords um, until they could get in with an account. All right, so that's uh, our our first yeah. one. Um, yes. Really significant, but e did you find it easy to fix right away from uh, an IT standpoint? That one was probably the easiest one to fix of the bunch. Well, the easiest one to fix that was outside my direct control because they were dealing with HR and, uh, and uh, employees. The second was we had no record data auditing uh, which would have really, they may have got in if we'd had data auditing, but we would have known right away that they're changing stuff. They got in with an account and they elevated the permissions. Well, we, with proper auditing, we would have known an account was elevated. That uh, shouldn't have been elevated. So that was the next step. Uh, we implemented uh, auditing on uh, permission changes and elevated permissions. So anytime somebody's elevated in the division, uh, I get an email right away and I can tell by who it is if there's something amiss. If it's uh, an elementary teacher getting suddenly getting administrative access, uh, it, it definitely uh, gets my attention. So, uh, so uh, from your standpoint, that's a nice uh, sort of an alarm based system where it's getting you feedback right away giving you the alert so that you can deal with it in a timely fashion. Exactly. And if you'd asked if there was a gem I found in this whole process, that would be one of them. Not just from a security standpoint, but from a day-to-day -day business standpoint. We had previously allowed administrators to change permissions on folders, and they didn't always do it right. But now we know knew who did it, and we could contact that stakeholder and ask what was the reason for it and correct it or uh, question why a teacher was getting access to something they shouldn't have or uh, those sorts of things. We, uh, so an opportunity to at least provide education as well as communication and, yes. and work through those systems because yes, we exactly. know uh, certain school sites will have some nuances in regards to what permissions certain staff will have uh, versus uh, another school down the road that doesn't need a similar position, uh, you know, position exactly. and or permission. Okay. Uh, well, and part of this allowed me to go to uh, senior leadership again, and an APM was developed, a policy um, on and this actually comes about with ransomware. I approached 
senior leadership. I actually used FOIP as my negotiating tactic, but uh, um, who should be accessing whose folders? Previously, teachers had access to all student folders. If they needed to check something in a student folder, they could do it. Secretaries had access to all the teacher folders because they, they'd hop in a folder, grab a report card, pull it out on their own. I use FOIP uh, sort of, should secretaries be accessing teachers' folders because there's personal information in there? We had a case where a teacher had access to student folders and executed a ransomware and encrypted the entire school's student folders because he had access to all student folders and they had access to shared resources. Uh, so we took a step back and used that as a way to limit exposure, not just for FOIP, but now if a teacher executes ransomware, they're only hurting themselves. They're only going to encrypt their own folder. They're not going to hit the shared folders. They're not going to hit uh, all the student folders. So therefore eliminating, you know, that spread of possibilities where you've got other people working and all of a sudden there's no access for some reason, exactly. they wouldn't know that. So the, the new policy basically is uh, nobody has access to, on the staff side, nobody has access to anybody else's folders unless we're directed by HR. So if there's, and, and I request it written so that there's an audit trail that the reality is sometimes you have to check on activities, uh, but it, for staff, it has to come through HR. Uh, so a principal can't ask for access to a teacher's folder in his school. He needs to approach HR and justify it, and then we accommodate it. So nice uh, to see, Barry, that you've established a tighter maybe process. Yes. And yeah. that's, of course, what the policy has helped you do it. But has it made over the last little bit that you've enforced it made it a little bit easier in regards to who knowing who has access, how it works? Exactly. And if I had to, well, outside of passwords, if I had to, to name one thing that we got the hardest pushback on, it was this, um, because it's always been easy for a secretary to just Where's your report cards? Oh, it's in my folder. They can go in and grab the report card. And principals felt empowered to go into whatever folder they desired within their, their school. And you take that step back further, teachers felt entitled to go into any student's folders. Um, and as we've moved more and more into technology, students are keeping more and more personal data in those folders. Uh, there's resumes, there's uh, letters that teachers shouldn't be looking at. So that level, uh, a teacher can't access a student folder unless it's requested by administrators. So if it's a discipline issue, the principal has to contact us and justify access. So it sounds like it's case by case is what you're yes. trying to do. You've you've gone the gamut of, of closing it and making sure this is the process and outlining why you're doing it. Yeah but it doesn't preclude someone from coming to you via HR to ask for special permission as long as they're saying why they need it, what's the purpose? Yes, yes. And to me, uh, on top of the FOIP issue, it's a real security issue from what lessons learned with ransomware. Limit that exposure. It, that was one of those takeaways that after it happened, it's just, why are we doing this? It's uh, But when we first approached it, there was real pushback that, as I said, this is what that way it's always been. So that's where I had to use HR and FOIP and 
to leverage those changes. Yeah. And so that's um, a that's a few of those changes. What else did you have to uh, change? What else did you notice from your audit? Uh, the next thing was, uh, so we've covered two, uh, the, uh, the access control and auditing. Uh, the next is passwords. The accounts that were hacked had very simple passwords. Uh, the one they found was uh, a teacher and it was the winter of 2017. Password was winter 2017. So we knew we had password issues. They were just too easy. Uh, I began the process of trying to enforce longer password, new password criteria. There was no appetite for it at first. We don't need longer passwords. Uh, teachers felt it cut into their time having to type in longer passwords. As a second phase, we engaged Triple Check again to do a password audit, just a password audit. So they got our hash files and out of 16, well, if you include students out of 13,000 accounts, 65 were hacked uh, within a day. So I took that information in the report and basically laid it out. This isn't acceptable. So I began pushing the password increase to 14 characters and a phrase, get away from words. And there was pushback again. Um, they felt that it was unnecessary. So I got a lot of emails back saying, I don't think one of my passwords is one that got hacked. So there was change, change was tough, right, Barry? Yeah. To to yeah. get them to move forward. So I got a lot of uh, requests saying, I think my password, it's eight characters, it's strong enough. And I'd reply back, no, it wasn't. It's one of the ones that's, you're not one of the 63 out of 13,000 that uh, that didn't get hacked. So we brought a senior leadership on board and said, this has to happen. And it all falls back. We've got to protect that student data. Student data is gold, it's clean credit scores, it's clean. There's several articles out in the U.S. of the data being held ransom for uh, liability. Uh, so there's, you get student reports that have coded students or a lot of personal information. If that's exposed to the public, it'd be quite... And in the U.S., there's the liability side that you could end up being sued for large sums of money. True, true, Barry. We, we've seen that in the United States. We've also seen it locally, you know, when we've seen people who have encrypted, allegedly, B drives with information. That's, that is scary. So going back to the eight characters that you were at, you then doubled that to 16? Uh, 14. To 14. So uh, where are you at? Did you roll that all out at once or did you do a section of staff at a time? How did you roll out that? Well, we previously had a policy of two password changes a year. That was an unpopular policy to begin with. But what we found as a test, I used the account that was winter 2017. And we were doing this in the spring and I just, spring 20, 2018, and that was the password. So, I mean, it was, people were just adding characters to the end or increasing the number by one or changing the year. We had a real education blitz before that, what you should and shouldn't do. Uh, we implemented a lot of uh, complexity requirements. So it can't contain part of your name, can't uh, contain password at all, the word password. It can't be similar to a previous password. And it, we did it in phases but just because of the load on our staff. There was lots of confusion on what the complexity was. It had to be three of four. It had to be a character, number, 
a capital and a special character. So any three of those four, uh, 14 characters, and then with the criteria I mentioned, can't be password, can't be your name, can't be a previous one you've used. We, we basically split the whole division into over three days, uh-huh. uh, but with a gap in between so we could put out the fires from the first day. Once we got it out there, people sort of have accepted it now. We don't get a lot of complaints about passwords anymore. But there's a password change coming, so it's probably the week of the year that I'm least popular in the division. <laughs> do you still password do it change. twice a year then, Barry? Or no. because of the 14 characters, you're down to once a year? That was the trade-off. And uh, a lot of research shows now that better passwords are better than frequent changes. The research basically says if you have one password, you don't necessarily even have to change it once a year as long as it's a better password. Correct. So that the, we we made the accommodation that if we're going to do longer passwords, we would do it once a year. That once a year is coming up, so we'll see. So you're, you're, telling, you're telling the listeners that you're going to be very busy, don't bug you, and when is this once a year that you usually do it? Uh, February. We try to get it after diploma exams. And okay. Once the dust is settled into second semester. Perfect. Well, and so now, so that's the three pieces. You have a fourth piece of your audit. What's your fourth piece that you went through? The fourth piece was not specific to our division. They found several flaws in software that we used. And it was really interesting because uh, we'll just take four servers, for example. One server vendor was right on it. Like within a day we had, we shared the vulnerabilities in their program. Within the day they'd address it. Another one didn't know how to address it. They had to, they engaged their legal. Are we legally obligated to fix this vulnerability? Uh, eventually they did. We shared it as knowledge, not as fix this or else. Just, you should be aware that we had an audit done and your software was exposed. The third was denial. We don't have a problem. This isn't a, a real world test. And these were real world utilities they were using and real world vulnerabilities. But to make it interesting is the first update they released after we shared this information with them, all the pat the vulnerabilities were patched in their release notes. So they so they probably had to go back and think about it. You know, as you know, we in school divisions, we have a variety of databases, third party applications, servers, that we use, no matter if we're small, medium, or large in Alberta. And so that's that's really interesting to note that the companies that you freely shared this information had those reactions, but good on you, one, to be able to be calmly enough to say, it's important for us to share. And number two, seeing the results that there's changes been done so that on your part, you are still comfortable using those products. Well, and, and especially with some of the software, they were widely used in Alberta. It just makes because sense. Good business it, sense it, to update it, it, right? Yeah, and nobody had done the audit, at the, the, the pen test audit that we had done at the time. So nobody may have been aware. As I said, one didn't even know how to deal with it. One, But anyway, it's a fourth uh, case was servers we managed. So Moodle, which is an open source server, they had addressed all these exposures, but we hadn't been proactive in applying their patches. It was sort of the opinion, it's not broken, don't, 
don't fix it. Don't fix it. Yeah. So once these exposures and vulnerabilities were shared, we got on our staff that handles servers and within the week we had them all patched up to current revision. It was from the time we got the report, three out of the four things were dealt that must have made you feel good one it was uh, you had to be vulnerable to be able to expose yourself to the audit two you were able to see over the four pieces you know where are we vulnerable we can fix this uh, we can reach out to our other community members or or third party applications or businesses that we deal with after you've done this and now you've cleaned up or or feel more secure what's the phase that you're in now Uh, are you doing another audit are you comfortable with what you're doing have you changed any of your business practices first question is we are going to audit again we've sort of i've set up over the past four years a cycle Uh, so we do a google audit through amplified it uh, they go through our entire Google domain, the, the Google suite, and look for settings that aren't quite right. And that's been educational. We've done it twice now, so we're starting the cycle again. That was the first one we did. And this year we did it again. We've done threat assessment. So what are internal threats that I'm going to tweak a bit? We sort of looked at it as what are we doing to the world? How many botnets are on our computer? How many are mailbots? Um, all that sort of thing. I think I want to refine that more as an internal audit. So how exposed are we to curious students if they're given time? And not the young ones, your high school students that are sitting in a lab poking around, how exposed are we there? So that I think is how I'm going to refine that threat assessment. Uh, we've done lots to address what we're doing to the world. So now I need to know as students are getting more savvy, maybe getting a little more time in the class to explore how exposed are. Yeah, so and, that's and your that, that, and that's your internal piece. So that's that's nice yeah. that you're not only yeah. looking at the outside threats, but you're also looking at the vulnerabilities inside and that you're cycling these audits yeah. throughout. So is there any other audits that you're using? So there's, after that, it'll be our Wi-Fi audit. How exposed is our Wi-Fi? I mean, schools are in residential areas. We have a few schools that you constantly see being probed. Somebody within the the, uh, direct neighborhood is poking at our Wi-Fi looking for exposure. And I guess in some sense, you could look at that as an external audit, but it's more, it could be either or. Yeah, Kids so it's community. Yeah, food. it's community based, and you're going yeah. site by site. So you're right. You've got your external and internal pieces to it. So those are three audits. Are there any audits? And then the external audit we're and going then, to do again. Okay. Uh, so we will audit. We will do a pen test again and see if we learn our lessons from the first time to make sure that there's. I mean, it's an evolving thing that we have a lot on our table. It's not necessarily my business to keep track of all the the hacks but i have a responsibility to know i'm exposed so it's sort of catch 22. it's an ongoing thing so and and that's what i appreciate you sharing with our listeners barry is that one we need to be aware in an educational setting of these potential threats both external and internal 
you've established a cycle of different types of audits. And so we'll certainly share information in the podcast uh, notes how to get a hold of you so that if they want to dig in deeper and talk to you a little bit further. I appreciate you taking time just to talk about cyber security and even just security overall in the educational and IT environment. I have some bonus questions for you. Two minutes. Perfect. Perfect. <laughs> What's the best Wi-Fi name you've ever come across? Because Fi. <laughs> Good one. If you could be a member of any TV sitcom family, what would it be? Home Improvement. Why? Uh, I'm a car guy. <laughs> You're a car guy. Fantastic. Okay, I've got a one would you rather question for you. Would you rather be able to breathe underwater or have the agility of a cat? Agility of a cat. Why is that? It was easy when I picked that one, but now to justify it, <laughs> just I think neat... just in everyday life, everyday life, uh, you get yourself out of a lot of trouble. A lot of trouble, and it's a neat superpower, right? <laughs> yeah, yes, exactly. Okay, last one. What sound do you love? Uh, so there's two. I'm a car guy, so I love the sound of a V8 and rustling leaves. Um, I love the sound of rustling leaves. I mean, that's very relaxing. Perfect. So Barry, I want to thank you for your time today spending with us on uh, the podcast. The listeners uh, have a treat in certainly listening all about cybersecurity. So I appreciate you taking your time today with us. Well, you're very welcome. Uh, there's also a section in Yammer that we've started uh, where I share a lot of links. Uh, whenever I find a, a new school-based exposure, I share it there. Perfect. So that's another thing for podcast listeners. ATLE members have access to a wonderful Yammer set of conversations throughout the province. So you do need to be an ATLE member. It's important. Get a hold of us and we'll make sure you're part of that conversation. Thank you, Barry. Thank you. Not only does ATLE and ATLE ProLearn share information on this podcast, they also host various online and in-person events in Alberta throughout the year. Check out the events calendar found on atle.ca. And if you would like to be part of this EdTech InfoTech Tidbits podcast, we would love to connect with you. Get a hold of us at prolearn at atle.ca and we'll have you on the show. Thanks for listening.